This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. $16.20 an hour. That has been stated as London's living wage. This isn't the first time we have had something like this, but a lot of research has gone into this, and I think we need to dig into that research to figure out what this means. To look at a living wage, what does it take to live comfortably in London, Ontario? And by comfortably, this is not, yeah, 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 we're jet-setting to Miami next week. This is being able to afford the things you need to afford. So how does that break down? Well, we have somebody who can tell us. Michael Corey is the center coordinator of the London Poverty Research Center at King's and joins us with all of the information that we need to make good sense of this. Michael, how are things today? $15.20 an hour is considered the living wage in London. So you asked the question, let's ask the question again. Michael, what does that mean? Yeah, so the living wage is a calculation um, of what we expected to, uh, the hourly wage that is expected for um, someone to work full time and be able to have a cert, uh, you know, a decent level of economic security in the city of London. Now, the living wage is calculated um, for each region across the province, and so it's unique specifically to the cost of living in each area. And uh, so in London, yeah, like you said, it's at sixteen dollars and twenty cents. And so this is also calculated. It starts by looking at a what a household with two adults working full time and they have two children, and then it goes through all of the different expenses from um, housing to nutritious food, clothing, uh, transportation, all those kinds of things. And then it also looks at the uh, government transfers and taxes and takes all that into account. And it says, so in London, for this household, uh, both parents need to be making at least $16.20 an hour to uh, have you know, a decent level of economic security. And that would be for both income earners in the household? Yes, both are income earners in the household. So that's about a close, you know, approaching $30,000 um, per person that they're making annually. And for the household, that's uh, $59,000 before tax income. So with regard to what sorts of things are in there, you mentioned nutritious food. How many extracurriculars are in there? Is there like a, a family road trip in there or do the kids have activities, anything like that? So there is a, a modest amount for uh small family vacation and recreation. Um, so annually for personal care, furniture, school fees, recreation, it's calculated about $8,000 or $8,800 for the family. Um, now what the calculation doesn't take into account is long-term savings and debt repayment. So that's a whole other layer uh, that, that to add in there. Okay. And that isn't in the calculation. So if someone had debt and that was something that they were slowly paying off, that would certainly affect their so-called living wage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We are talking with Michael Corey, who is the center coordinator at the London Poverty Research Center at King's. And we're looking at $16.20 having been declared the living wage in London. Who made the declaration? So the London Poverty Research Centre at Kings, we've been working with the Ontario Living Wage Network. And the Ontario Living Wage Network is basically supporting um, different hubs across Ontario to do the calculation and, uh, 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 and to make sure that they're unique to the living situation in each area. Um, for us, it's a matter of, you know, just 
getting this number out there, having a conversation around what does this mean for the city, um, what does this mean for employers in the city, and sort of, you know, also how does it compare with the current minimum wage, and what does that mean for uh, how we need to think about uh, employment and wages into the future. Because this right here is... I don't know if we can say substantially, but there is some significance to how much it is above minimum wage. It doesn't sound very much like, well, it's only a couple of dollars more, but you add that up over every hour you work throughout the course of the year, that's going to be a big difference in money. Now, with regard to other communities, do we know how London compares? Yeah, so London's actually coming in as uh, the lowest uh, living wage amount um, across the cities that calculated it this year. As the general trend, though, is that as you move closer to Toronto, living expenses go up and therefore the living wage also goes up. Um, so Kitchener, Guelph, uh, they have a, ones that are slightly higher, reaching up close to $17 an hour. And then Toronto is actually sitting at uh, $22 an hour for their living wage. Really? $22 an hour to live in Toronto? Yes. So this and so you know this has a lot to do. We all know that there's an affordability crisis going on, particularly in terms of housing and access to affordable housing, and that plays a large role in sort of uh, um, shaping how 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 these uh, living wages calculated. Michael Corey joining us as we talk about London's living wage, which has been declared as $16.20, and this would be in a household that had two adults. Two children, each income earner, each adult, would have to be making $16.20. It does not factor in things like debt. Michael is the center coordinator at the London Poverty Research Center at King's. Michael, you mentioned this kind of goes toward employers. Who else do you hope pays close attention to this? So, yeah, so, uh, of course, for employers, this is a great thing to be looking into and and working into their business planning. But then also for general employers, civil society and 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 uh, uh um it's important to recognize that a lot of what keeps the living wage actually at a sort of a lower level is that we have is the level of uh tax transfers and government subsidies that are going in uh child care of course being a major one uh, in the calculation it's actually calculated at about $19,000 is the cost for child care for uh uh this family but with once we take government transfers into account um, that goes down substantially. And so each house involved in this calculation is about $23,000 of government transfers and subsidies to these households. So do you hope that we've got government officials who pay attention to that when they go looking to say, okay, we uh, need to save some money. How about not that, not that, not that? You want them to look at your list. Exactly. It's very important that, we, that we're aware of when we're, we're going to get into cutting programs um, um, and looking for savings that we understand the implications of what that means for households and families and, and working people. Where do we go from here with living wage? Is this something we can look to hear about each and every year? Does it come up more than that or would it need to come up less than that? So it is supposed to be an annual calculation. In London, we haven't, this is our first calculation since 2016, and we're hoping to be able to uh, participate in at least doing the annual calculation. What we um, uh, what we're hoping for is that uh, uh, there would be a London Living Wage Network that would that would come back to life. Um, but from a, our London Poverty Research Center, what we can do is at least help get the number out there and publicize it. Now there is a network for Ontario. What would having a London network provide? 
basically a London network would would just host um, living wage mixers once in a while. Um, just they would be a center for kind of encouraging other employers to certify and uh, uh, sort of a touch point for that. Like so, for right now, uh, employers can call us at the London Poverty Research Center, and we will connect them with the Ontario Living Wage Network, and that network does all the certification processes. Okay. One final thing, just because we haven't touched on it yet, you mentioned this is the first London living wage that's been calculated since 2016. What did 2016 look like? So 2016, the living wage was uh, $15.53 an hour. So we have about a 4.3% increase over that three-year period in the living wage. And do you see that as being anything major to look at? Or or is that just kind of, hey, the cost of stuff has definitely gone up in the last three years? Well, I think certainly the cost of stuff, like, it's, it's, it's really, I think it comes down to our housing questions and child care. Like, those are big areas where... Um, we need to watch out. We need to ensure that we have a housing supply that's going to be affordable and that we maintain our, our child care subsidies. Those are very important programs for uh, uh, this to, to stay at, a, at this kind of uh, at this kind of 4.3 percent rate. All right. Well, Michael, we really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. OK, thank you. That's Michael Corey. He's the center coordinator of London Poverty Research Center at King's. So that kind of outlines where the $16.20 an hour needs to go. This is not dealing with debt. It certainly is eaten up a lot by making sure that you have affordable housing and affordable child care. And, you know, I'm not sure when the trend started, maybe back when Adam Scott and buddies were working out this whole capitalistic society that we live in, but the bottom lining of everything that goes on Child care, if you look at child care workers, they don't tend to make very much money. When you look at child care providers for daycare, the cost is still exorbitant. It's a massive cost. Talk to anyone who has a child in daycare. They have to budget for that, and they cut and they slash a lot of times in order to be able to afford that. How many times have we talked to people on London Live who have said, We've I've chosen to stay home with my child because that's just what makes things affordable. And that isn't always possible. If you have two people making $16.20 an hour or less in the household, then that child care, that's, that's big. That's massive. And while it doesn't last very long, it's still a huge chunk that people struggle with. How do we fix that? How do you make child care more affordable? Because it's not like we're seeing child care providers going, well, we're living the high life now. I think next week I'll change from being a child care provider and I'm going to buy a golf course. That's not them. That's not what they're doing. They're still not making much money, yet the cost for child care is huge. Now, we do have subsidies, but at the same time, When that's being factored in, that helps to raise what you need in order to live. Affordable housing is something that is a problem everywhere. And we're pretty lucky still. We've seen a real jump in in, uh, housing prices, but we are still pretty lucky. Prices are are still lower than some other areas. Now, if you're a first-time homebuyer, it's a challenge, but that's not what we're dealing with here. It's dealing with what do you need to live in order to be able to afford that rent, in order to be able to afford whether it's, it's child care that you're dealing with or 
nutritious food, things like that. And that's what goes into the living wage. And we're still a lot lower than anybody else as we get closer to Toronto. We can break down statistics all over the place. We were talking earlier about load management and how with the changing of the clocks, we all have to watch our own load management. You get enough rest, you're a happier person for it. But rest is not the only thing that apparently is going to make you a happier person. And we've got an opportunity to look at something that has been put together that deals pretty specifically with guys. And it deals with the number of friends that men have. I've always looked at myself and felt like a failure as a friend. I'm a bad friend. I really am. I forget. I I just I don't I don't go out of my way. I should ask people how they're doing. I don't do that. I'm a bad friend. And you know how I know? I've never been a best man at a wedding. Not one time. Not a good friend. And I'll put myself in that category over and over again. But there is some new research that is looking at men and friends and saying that men are struggling to keep them. And that's not a good thing, that you need to surround yourself with friends. Joining us right now is someone who can help us to break down this research. Laura Hensley, national online journalist in Smart Living with Global News. Laura, how are things? Good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Okay, so men and friends. We always see the beer commercials that have the buddies. They're having a good time. But are we to believe that that's not reality? Well, I think the thing is men do have friends, but compared to women, they typically have fewer friendships and more surface-level friendships. So, for example, you know, women might talk to each other about personal problems that are going on in their lives, really lean on each other and be vulnerable. But research shows that men are less likely to be vulnerable with their friendships, which can really lead to feelings of isolation, depression, and it's just not a good feeling to have. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point, yeah, because two guys very rarely are going to be able to get together and get to the point where you can share those intimacies. You're too busy talking about, you know, who won the Knicks game last night, what the Leafs are going to do, that kind of stuff. Definitely. I mean, the idea of masculinity and what it means to be a man often sort of portrays emotions as being weak or womanly, you know? So we've really conditioned society, and men in particular, that if they do have struggles, they don't feel necessarily comfortable talking to their male friends about them. So some of the experts I spoke to said that this is actually really harmful because it means that if a guy has a problem, he's more likely to either keep it to himself or only confide in his partner. And that's not necessarily a helpful way of dealing with those issues. Especially if the issue might include the partner? Especially if the issue might include the partner. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. We're talking with Laura Hansley, national online journalist with Global News, and we're looking at some of the research that has been done and some of the expert opinion on guys and their friends. So surface-level friends, so would that be the same as like an acquaintance or somebody you can spend time with, but you're not necessarily, you know, getting down and dirty into here's the issue that I'm dealing with. Exactly. So men's friendships typically, you know, they form in childhood and they're often formed through mutual activity. So say you play hockey with a guy, you, you, you know, you hang out with them during that period. But as you age, men typically lose those close relationships. So whereas women might be more inclined to make an effort to call a girlfriend from university to have coffee or to catch up, 
men, if they have those surface level friendships or those friendships that are only really there because of a shared mutual interest, they're less likely to maintain them because, you know, as we know, casual relationships are much harder to maintain than close, meaningful ones. Laura, you've been able to talk with people about why friends are actually important because people can say, hey, I like my life. I like the way things are going. Don't tell me I need to go out and buy more birthday presents and have more heart to hearts and and get into all of that stuff. But you've actually talked to people who tell you why friends are important. What have you found? Definitely. So doctors have found that there's, there's tons of research actually on this, first of all. So some of the research says that, you know, social interactions have a positive effect on life satisfaction. So in other words, the more quality friendships you have, the happier you are with your life. And I spoke to one doctor out of, you know, Toronto Sunnybrook um, Hospital, and he was saying that social support systems have been shown to promote resilience in mental health and in physical health. So there's more to friendships than just having someone to chat about. They can actually really benefit your overall well-being. And you wouldn't necessarily notice that. If we're talking physical, it can actually have physical advantages? Yeah, so doctors say that, you know, friendships are really important when it comes to recovery. So say you have an injury, you even think about it, you're in the hospital, you're sick, your friends come to visit you, you know, it cheers you up, you automatically have a positive reaction. But when people are lonely and isolated, there's been so much research that found their quality of life just goes down. And it's a lot harder to think positively and have those positive people in place if you're isolated. So... If you have more, that that would suggest you need a large group of friends. Did you hear that from anyone you spoke with, or does it just have to be some and quality some? Exactly. The amount of friends you have is less important than the quality of your friends. So, So even if you have one or two friends that you can call when you're struggling, that is enough. You don't need to have a phone book full of best friends, you know. I mean, I'm sure the more friends you have, you might be happier, but the research really points to the fact that even a few positive interactions with friends on a regular basis has positive effects. We're talking with Laura Hansleet, national online journalist with Global News. Do we know why it is maybe that men don't tend to establish, and, and we're generalizing by the numbers here, that, that a good number of men don't tend to go out and, and really promote more friendships than they have? Definitely. So there's a few reasons, and again, this is a, these are general reasons, but a few common reasons are that as men get older, you know, they start to prioritize their work and their you know, personal relationships more than their friendships. So if they get into a romantic partnership, they're more likely to only confide in their spouse. So their friendships take a back seat. You know, another factor is that when a man does get into a partnership, he often more likely relies on his partner's social network. So again, you're abandoning your own friends. And, you know, thirdly, like we talked about a bit earlier, men form relationships early on in life through shared activities. So if those activities are gone, and you're not maintaining that friendship, it's a lot harder to make new friends if you're not engaging in any activity. So there's a few things at play, but it all kind of comes down to, as well, the way that men think they can interact. You know, one really important thing that I think needs to be highlighted is that, you know, some men that I spoke to said they didn't feel like they could talk to their friends about issues. You know, they felt kind of shy about them. Um, But once they opened up, they really found it to be therapeutic. So I think a stigma around revealing vulnerable is a huge factor as well. Yeah. And that probably just comes down to guys trying to be less of what they think a guy is supposed to be. Exactly. Masculinity plays a huge role. Yeah. Laura, this is really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for breaking it down for us. Great job. 
Thank you for having me. If you would like to read Laura's article, you can find that very easily. I've tweeted it out, and you can find that at Stubbs980, and it gives you a link to the entire article. I, yeah, I mean, it's it's not hard to, to fall into that, you know, and... And when you look at groups of friends, it's it's strange. You're one of the lucky ones if you can maintain friendship groups for a long, long time. If you have friends that go back to when you were five years old. But friends, they say, will, will come and go. They'll change over time. A lot of it will involve the path that you take in life. If you grow up, as Laura says, you kind of stop doing some of those activities. Maybe when you get married or maybe when you start having a family. But then your friend groups come from the activities your kids are doing. But then as your kids get older and they stop doing those activities, then all of a sudden you've got to put the work back in. Does that suggest that we've got to go out and, and join more things and, and do more things? Is that kind of what the suggestion is? It is one of those things that, again, has been proven to have mental and physical effects. What do you think? Does it make sense to you? Phone lines are open, 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. I will admit it right away. I am classic this. If I have to confide in somebody, it's my wife. If I have an issue, I will tell her. She and I have never had an issue, and I hope that's never the case. I don't foresee that. We've been together for 23 years, never had a major issue. So I don't foresee that happening. But at the same time, yeah, that's I'm right in that category right there. And I am a I am a bad friend. I will throw that on the table anytime I'm asked. I don't go above and beyond like I probably should. And I should probably get better at that. So interesting read. You can find that again. I've tweeted it out at Stubbs 980. want to look back at this latest directive by the Ontario government on cell phones in the classroom. But I think we need to look at this in a broader way. Essentially what's happening here is the Ontario government is saying that students can only use cell phones, but they of course call them personal mobile devices. They can only use cell phones during basically time in which it is used for educational purposes or under a teacher's instructions, or for a medical emergency or a health emergency or some kind of other special need. So that's what they're trying to say. And yesterday we had the short statement ahead of these restrictions, and we had Stephen Lecce, who's the education minister, say that the government has heard clearly from parents and educators about the growing challenge relating to distracted students in the classroom. If you talk to students, they don't see this as being a big deal at all. This is not something that they're going to be pushing back against. You watch. They would push back if you took away their phone in class, but that's not what's happening. But a lot of them are saying that this already takes place. If you have a teacher, an educator, doesn't matter whether it's you know high school or college, university, if you have somebody who is in control of their classroom, and interesting to listen to, and engaging the students, you don't have a problem. You know, you're not, you're not going to have a problem at all. I run into this sometimes at Fanshawe College, not very often, but if people are watching a video, I'll stop class, 
Tell me what the video is. We'll put it up. Might be worth all of us watching for a second. So this is not something that students are going to see as a big deal. But is this something that needs to go above and beyond a little bit more? You know, this will get into, and people will use the word nanny state right away. But if you look at work, you know, how much productivity, and and this is where it all comes to a head, how much measuring do we want to do? You know, we've measured friends today. We've measured sleep times for daylight saving time coming to an end. We could measure the number of times that people pick up their phone and look at it. How many times you check Facebook in a day. You can get that data from your phone. You can see exactly what you're doing on a per-day basis. How many times you are on an app. How much time overall is spent on that app. And you can look at that and go, Woo, man, 62 minutes on Facebook. I got to get something else to do. Those are 62 minutes that I won't get back. Watching adult show and tell. Woo. Another 41 minutes on Instagram? You kidding me? So maybe this is one of those opportunities for everybody just to say, yeah, you know what they're doing? They're trying to crack down on kids doing useless things with their phones in classrooms that I, for one, don't believe happens to any great extent. In my opinion, this is the government offering up a directive to say, we are going to create the highest standard of education anywhere. We have directives that say kids are going to pay more attention in class because they're not going to be allowed to use their phones or personal mobile devices for anything other than learning purposes when they are in class. That's the government trying to make things seem good so they can say, see, and this is why we're making these changes to education. This is why we're doing this. We're we're cutting back on the number of teachers and we're doing this. That's where this is coming from, in my opinion. And will it work? No, it's not. This is still going to get messy. We had the ratification of the vote by QP employees, not 99%, not 98%. What was it, 78% overall? And I think we're still breaking down numbers in terms of what it is in Thames Valley or what it is with the London District Catholic School Board. So we'll hopefully have those numbers for you. Uh, We may have them already. We may, you know, we may have them out very, very soon. So you have that kind of thing happening. If you're looking at making this a, a better situation for everybody, you're looking at improving the classroom. And I don't think fewer people improve classrooms ever. Talk to teachers, they'll say, yeah, no, we need more EAs, not fewer EAs. You know, we need more ability to help a child than just sit there and lecture to a child. That's not going to help kids as they move forward. Not everybody is ready for a university-style course. So, I mean, the education system, you can call it broken. You can call it damaged. You can call it any number of things. It is all of those things. But as is everything, nothing is perfect. Our democracy is not perfect. But in the end, this cell phone thing is not as big a deal as it's being made out to be. And I really believe that it's the government saying, yeah, we're we're making good education. And this is one of those steps toward it. So support it. And when you hear the teachers angry and when you hear the words work to rule, don't worry about that because we're creating a great education system. That's my fear in all of this.
because that's not the right way to go. And we still have a big fight coming up. But maybe what this does is it makes us all say, yeah, okay, well, if, if students are supposed to be working in the classroom while they're in the classroom, how about the rest of us? Yeah, how much time am I spending on the score app checking scores? See, that's mine. It's not Facebook. It's not Instagram. It's the score app. And I don't know what I spent on it recently, but I'm, I'm sure it's a number that I could probably pare down. question is, what do you do? You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.